Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to SEAC Stories, brought to you by the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at the University of Sydney. This podcast tells the stories of our members. I'm your host, Natalie Pearson. The last few years have brought to the fore the brilliant work of researchers as they work to find a vaccine for COVID-19. But have you ever stopped to think about the role of biological materials in this and other science and health-related research? The international scientific community relies on the availability of these biological materials, but where do they come from and what are the rules governing their use? Have these governance mechanisms been successful in addressing historic inequality in the way biological material is used, or are they simply perpetuating the very systems of inequality they are trying to overcome? These are fascinating questions with real-world implications, including in Indonesia, which has recently introduced reforms that make it harder for foreign researchers to export biological materials for research, with consequences for the already complex systems that underpin scientific exchange. To discuss the nuances of global health governance, and specifically biogovernance in Indonesia, I am joined today by Associate Professor Sonia Van Wichelen from the School of Social and Political Sciences at the University of Sydney. Sonia researches the social implications of biotechnology and law and has focused on reproductive technologies in previous projects. More recently, she is examining bioscience governance in Southeast Asia. Focusing on Indonesia, she is particularly interested in the relationship between regulatory frameworks and global inequality. She was a visiting fellow at the Institute for Advanced Study in 2021 and is the author of Legitimating Life, Adoption in the Age of Globalization and Biotechnology, published in 2019, and also Religion, Gender and Politics in Indonesia, Disputing the Muslim Body, published in 2010. Sonia, you are very welcome to SEAC Stories. Thanks, Natalie. Looking forward to this conversation. Right, so we're going to go straight to the heart of it here. What are biological materials? I mentioned them in my introduction, but what exactly are they? Well, that's a great question to start because it it already asks the complication of the things that I'm studying. So the whole materiality question of what biological materials are is a very tricky question. So Conventionally, biological material for research can be non-human material, and then we're talking about plants or whole organisms. And I focus specifically on human bioscience, so then the materials that are involved are usually tissues, organs, blood, skin, cells, hair. It can be stool samples, for instance, or saliva or other bodily fluids. But what I wanted to get at is that now more and more, it's not necessarily whole organisms or complete plants that are being exchanged or transferred. So more and more, we're relying on what is called proxies or what is called bioinformation. So they stand for the actual material. So these can be cell lines, they can be frozen tissue samples, or even just genetic sequence data, so digital data. And that makes, of course, this question of what is biological material really complicated because, first of all, is it still material? If we're talking about human genetic data, is it material or is it completely detached from the human? So a lot of researchers are saying that 
actually no there there is a relation between the original human body and the data that represents that body so so we can't just see it as totally detached it has a relational aspect and then there are material that are becoming much more valuable for research such as fecal matter so stool samples and what are stool samples are they human material or are they not human material so some people will say no it has more microbial dna than human dna but then from fecal matter you can identify people so does that make it human biological material so you start with a question that is actually at the heart of my research but also of other legal scholars that are looking into biological material in this day and age yeah these are really fascinating questions with significant legal implications because you know i i was expecting you to say that they are tissues and stool samples and blood but when it gets to that question of whether genomic sequencing and data is human biological material and when it can lead to identifying individuals you know it really does get very complicated so give us a bit of a historical perspective here. Science has been relying on human biological material for a long time, particularly from the global south. And your research talks about how colonies were seen as these living laboratories where there was a lack of oversight, allowing scientists and researchers to extract biological material. Can you elaborate on this historical context a bit more in terms of what was being taken and whether this was consensual or exploitative? Of course, Western science was intimately linked with colonialism. So on the one hand, it portrayed the idea that Western science was beneficial to all. So including populations in the global south or in their colonies at that time. So they were imbued by civilizational discourse that informed science and the idea of science comments but also were informed by scientific racism that were at the heart of some of the colonial dynamics between science and the relationship with colonial populations. So, for instance, even Darwin implied that the savage races were closer to gorillas. Now, we have, we have a wonderful historian of science and medicine here at the University of Sydney who writes really superbly on this historical context. And you asked me about some of the biological material that were being transferred during colonialism. And Western science relied on all kinds of biological material for medical research. And that can range from skeletons or embalmed bodies, skulls, and Warwick Anderson's work was on brains and other organs were, were being exchanged. And you asked about regulation. Yes, there was little regulation at that time, but there were, of course, rules, informal rules and customs amongst scientists. And often these customs and rules were based on gift debt relations, on patronage systems, sometimes on disciplinary cultures, for instance. That doesn't mean, though, that they weren't exploitative, of course, because often they were. 
So these relationships and these networks, scientific networks of exchange, um, you talk about gift and debts, these were relationships that existed between scientific communities, not with the communities whose materials were being taken. Exactly. And that exemplified the colonial relation. So, of course, the white scientists had a very different kind of position than the um, indigenous communities that they were researching. So it definitely had all these exploitative elements in them. Astrocolonialism, because you, you asked about regulation, we've tried to fix this. We've tried to fix this by introducing regulations and bioethical instruments. One of them is, for instance, informed consent. But many researchers, and including me, they indicate that informed consent too can be problematic. So what is informed consent, for instance, when you provide biological material that is then commercialized and becomes highly profitable, for instance. So even though you consented, you still might find this an unfair situation, especially when material comes from poor indigenous communities. So you ask whether the situation was consensual or exploitative, but in this case, you could even argue that it's consensual and exploitative. I did a lot of um, research before this on cross-border surrogacy, so international surrogacy arrangements where you carry a child for someone else. And usually this, again, happened primarily with women in the global south catering to Western parents in the global north. And even though this would be consensual, even though contracts are in place and there's informed consent, it can still be a very exploitative situation. So this is what I was trying to get at. Something can be consensual and exploitative. That's right. And it really comes back to the question of benefit and what the benefits are and who is benefiting because can it ever be, I'm thinking about surrogacy here, can it ever be consensual when somebody is impoverished and desperately needs that money even if there is a contract in place? you know, can you consider it to be consensual? So tell us a bit more about this question of benefit. What sort of benefits might there be in extracting biological materials for the scientists and for the people involved? And and who's currently getting these benefits? So if we're talking about benefits and and benefit sharing agreements and rules in biomedical research, there are different kinds of benefits. So for instance, if pharmaceutical companies are profiting enormously, we might expect some form of financial assistance. So if we're thinking about bioprospecting, for instance, that's the exploration or the collection of plants for scientific, but also for commercial research. And there are clear rules around bioprospecting at the moment. So in exchange for some of the biological material that are being transferred for research, Research institutions or companies, pharmaceutical companies, can in return give a percentage of their budget or their royalties to training, for instance, or to technical assistance to improve local research, improve their capacity. But unfortunately, research is showing that very little benefits are actually happening and are actually directing, directly coming to local communities. So a lot still needs to be done in this area to implement some of the rules that have been formulated around this and the best 
system that is in place for this is the Convention for Biological Diversity. Yeah, well, why don't you tell us a little bit about the global governance around what is this biomedical research industry? You just introduced us to this fabulous term bioprospecting and you said it's quite well regulated. Can you tell us a bit more about this global regulatory framework or or do nations regulate it? Um, Yes, absolutely. So there are a number of governing bodies. We've got the United Nations Convention of Biological Diversity and the Nagoya Protocol, and they govern transfer of biological material for bioprospecting. So a lot of it is about plants, for instance, and and pharmaceutical companies who are doing research, but also um, commercializing some of the products that come out of this research. So a lot of drug manufacturing come up. The convention really regulates also some of the drug manufacturing that comes out of this. But then you also have in the arena of global health, for instance, the international health regulations. And those govern a lot of the material that are being transferred for, for instance, around uh, disease outbreaks. So the pandemic is a really good illustration of where the international health regulations should have been applied. And most important for my research is the impact of the World Trade Organization's agreement on what is called trade-related aspects of intellectual property rights. And it's a mouthful, I know. It is therefore shortened as the TRIPS. And this is a multilateral agreement on intellectual property, which had a detrimental impact for developing countries. So it strengthened intellectual property, but mostly for global North countries. And TRIPS really failed to incentivize infrastructure, for instance, in the global south that could improve self-sufficiency in healthcare delivery. So it didn't incentivize innovation or or localized drug discovery. And, and we see this dynamic clearly in the current COVID-19 pandemic with Pfizer and Moderna having these enormous profits. But... Um, vaccines trickling down to global South countries. So let's turn to Indonesia now, because we've touched on a few of the issues relating to benefit the global governance framework, and you just mentioned intellectual property rights. So can you tell us a bit more about the lead role that Indonesia has played in shaping the health governance agenda, and in particular, this controversy that sort of erupted in 2007 in relation to the World Health Organization's position on biological material? Yes, absolutely. Indonesia... It's really a really interesting case. It's a a salient case of a country in the global south that is actively trying to mitigate some of the inequalities that come out of these governance systems. So in 2007, the Indonesian government triggered a global health crisis by refusing to share samples of the avian influenza virus, so the H5N1. And this was requested by the World Health Organization at that time. They used the term viral sovereignty and insisted that any commercial use of samples that they would give to WHO, for instance, vaccine production, that that would require the permission of the country from where the sample originated. This created a real panic at the WHO, but especially the U.S., And informing Indonesia's refusal was the um, fact that the WHO had provided 
an Australian biotech company with a vaccine strain from Indonesia, and they had developed and patented a vaccine without informing and without collecting consent from Indonesia. So that was what spurred Indonesia to declare this thing, what they called viral sovereignty. Mm, it's a really interesting term. And, and what it resulted in was Indonesia and other countries in the global south being priced out of the market when it came to these patents. Exactly. And they wanted to secure illegal instruments within the WHO that could make sure that they got benefits out of it as well. It took years of negotiations with the WHO to come to a new framework called the Pandemic Influenza Preparedness Framework, also shortened as the PIP framework. And, and I look at the centrality of one particular legal instrument, the Material Transfer Agreement, that was central in these negotiations. And Indonesia really wanted these instruments so that they could secure some kind of benefit when they would share their material. It's interesting that the whole debate revolves around ownership or sovereignty. I guess my research really tries to hone in on a different aspect, that it's not only about ownership, but it's also about knowledge production. It's also about recognition. It's also about that Global South countries can contribute to scientific production, that they should not be only seen countries that deliver only the materials, the raw materials, which has been a colonial trope. They also want to contribute to scientific knowledge production. That's right. I mean, in the past, when a Dutch colony, it was a place for producing sugar and rubber, and the materials might have changed, and it might be more like data today. But of course, we don't want to be perpetuating these sort of unequal frameworks where uh, things are being extracted and there is no benefit in country. So has Indonesia updated its domestic regulatory framework as well? I understand there was some new legislation brought in in 2019. Is that part of this strong stance that Indonesia took against the World Health Organization? That's a great question. So Indonesia started to really invest in biotech and biotech innovation. And I think it's accumulation of events that brought them to this new law, the CISNAS IPTEC law. It's this national law for technology and innovation. And out of that comes a national agency, which is called BRIN, so the National Research and Innovation Agency. And they are supposed to be the central hub for all kinds of research funding, but also all kinds of regulatory issues relating to bioscientific governance. And indeed, it, it comes out of these frustrations that they are strengthening their laws around bioscientific governance nationally. I think we could have a whole separate podcast on BRIN and its effectiveness and its ambitions. A lot of the current discussions, because Megavati Tsukano Putri is now leading the governing board, so it becomes now something that is politicized or that might become politicized. So it, it becomes a whole different um, agency than what was envisioned. 
Yes, and of course, Britain is bringing together research across all all of Indonesian government and academic institutions, not just for this specific topic that we're talking about today, but it's consolidating research across Indonesia. But it's very interesting that all of this happened pre-COVID, and I, I don't think we could do this podcast without asking you a question about lessons learned from COVID and, and what COVID has either emphasised or brought home when it comes to bioscience in Indonesia. You know, you see the retreat to nationalism and even to ultra-nationalism with the current COVID-19 pandemic. On the other hand, you also see this enormous success science and the sharing among scientists, because even though you had all of these debates around sovereignty and about ownership during the COVID-19 pandemic, what you also saw was the incredible sharing of data among scientists to make development of vaccine production possible. So I personally believe Maybe naively, but I still personally believe in this idea that we do have to still work towards something which is called science commons, even even though it would be on an ideal level. But be very aware of what kind of power dynamics are involved. And again, the pandemic is a good example of how some of these inequalities between global north and global south are still persistent. I think you've really brought our attention to a a really interesting idea here about this idea of the commons and whether biological material is part of the scientific commons and the question of whether scientists have a right to it for the common good. I mean, that's one of the the big questions emerging from your research, isn't it? Exactly. Exactly. I I think this culture of sharing is really valuable and we'll have to Rather than thinking about benefits, it might be more productive to see how we can think about cultures of sharing and how we could do that more justly in this unequal world. That's right. And and paying attention, as you've just said, to these power dynamics within so-called shared commons. Yeah, absolutely. I'll just ask you one last question, Sonia, if I may, and and that is about where you see this moving in the future. So you've shared with us about how global governance is impacting the global south in the context of Indonesia and also given us this really interesting example of how Indonesia has been actively shaping the health governance agenda. Where do we go next from here? How's it going to evolve? Look, it all depends on a number of things. I think Maybe first of all, one thing that we can have control over is how we conduct research as scientists, as researchers, also as social science researchers, and how we involve, if we're doing research elsewhere, how we involve the local people there and how we recognize the contributions that they make, how we can share and learn from each other's knowledge of the thing that we're researching. That's something that we can change and we can think differently about. Then there are bigger forces at play that need changing too. So I think the the current debates around TRIPS are really important for global bioscience in general too, not only for the pandemic. So I'm, I'm looking forward to what comes out of the pandemic treaty to see how this could also impact global bioscience governance in general. 
Absolutely. Well, look, Sonia, thank you for sharing with us this really fascinating topic today. It's been so interesting to learn more about it and we wish you all the best for the rest of the project and we'll have to get you back to tell us where you land with it. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you so much, Sonia. You've been listening to SEAC Stories, brought to you by the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at the University of Sydney. Make sure to keep up with all our SEAC Stories podcasts by following us on your favourite podcasting app. If you like the show, please rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. And of course, let your friends know about us on social media.